if we are not acknowledging what actual facts and truth are, then we're not having an honest conversation and we can't get anywhere. Hello, I'm Head of School Brian Garman, and welcome to Lives at Speak, an occasional podcast devoted to exploring how Sidwell Friends School graduates have practiced ethical leadership and active citizenship in their lives and professions. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Daniel S. Goldman, who graduated in 1994. After attending Yale University and Stanford Law School, Dan served as U.S. Attorney and Deputy Chief of the Organized Crimes Unit of the Southern District of New York. He has served as a legal analyst at NBC and MSNBC and was named a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University School of Law. Most recently, Dan accepted an appointment as Senior Advisor and Director of Investigations for the U.S. House of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. In this role, he was the Chief Legal Advisor to Congressman Adam Schiff, the Chair of the House Intelligence Committee, during the proceedings that led to the impeachment of Donald Trump. Dan, thanks for making time to be with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. So not long ago, you shared uh, that you had contracted COVID-19 in a very public way on the Morning Joe show. Uh, and you uh, told Joe Amica about that experience. How, how are you? Are you? Are you feeling okay now? I am fully back to normal now, thankfully. Um, it was a, uh, it was, it's, it's a serious, serious virus. And I was one of the lucky ones who did not have it affect my lungs. And that's where the real danger kicks in. And I think that's why we're seeing all of these um, deaths that stem from it. But for whatever reason, it affects people differently. And um, I never, it never got to be much worse than a very extended, debilitating flu. That's effectively mm-hmm. what it was for me. Mm-hmm. And your family is okay now? Everybody is. My recovered. wife got it as well. Um, and the same thing happened to her, but no lungs. So um, she's fully back to normal and, and the kids are fine. So we're keeping our fingers crossed and, and feeling lucky at this point. Yeah, well, we're glad that uh, you are recovered, and we're so happy that you could be with us here today for this conversation. Part of what you shared uh, that struck me in the conversation on Morning Joe was your experience with the healthcare system. Um, would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Sure. I I, I ended up um, having these symptoms and um, feeling like, well, okay, I have these symptoms. I tested negative for the flu. So I should go get tested for coronavirus. And we had heard from our federal government and the president specifically that anyone who wants to get tested can get tested. And obviously, testing is critical to following, maintaining, defeating, overcoming this sort of illness. So I found that it was incredibly difficult to get tested. And so I ended up going public with my process of trying to get tested in real time on Twitter. And I went and spent six hours at the Wild Cornell emergency room trying to get a test. I had all of the symptoms, basically, other than shortness of breath that you associate with coronavirus. And I had tested negative for the flu. So it would seem I would be a very natural candidate to get tested. And they said to me, we would love to test you, but we do not have enough tests to be able to test people who are not so seriously ill that they need to be admitted into the hospital. So they ended up giving me a chest X-ray and another panel, a viral panel of tests to see if I had some other virus than the flu. And I sat there in an overcrowded ER. I literally was on a a, a hospital bed in the hallway of the ER for six hours. And it was truly remarkable and incredibly frustrating. And the doctors were frustrated because they, of course, realized that the way to properly deal with this would be to test people like me and to determine whether I had it or not and then to isolate me. So effectively, what they told me is we we can't test you, but you should 
Um, you should assume you have it, but and go home and isolate. But because I did not was not aware of coming into contact with any known positive um, person, anyone known to have a positive test, they said that my family should go about their normal life because um, it's not clear that I have it or not. That has changed since I I went through the process. I think now that that everything is is everyone is really disposed to quarantine. But at the time, that's what I was told. So I went home, and I thought to myself, "This is crazy." And I had heard from somebody that uh, up in Connecticut they were doing sort of drive-through testing, like they did uh, so so frequently and, and successfully, and um, in South Korea. And so I drove, I woke up early, very early the next morning and I drove to Connecticut, which was a little over an hour away. Um, and I sat in a parking lot and got my nose swabbed and, and got a test. Uh, but that's really what I had to do. And it was incredibly frustrating, particularly when there was so much misinformation coming from the federal government about the, the availability of testing. And, and Brian, here we are today, about a month later, and there still isn't, are insufficient tests, and we're still not testing enough to determine who has it, who doesn't have it, and it really makes you wonder how are we going to get out of this almost nationwide lockdown that we're in without being able to determine who has it, who doesn't have it, whether people have antibodies, whether they're positive or negative. It's hard to envision where we go from here. Yeah, and you're really at the epicenter of it all in New York, uh, at least in in terms of uh, infections in the United States. What what have you seen that's been successful there, in terms of uh, trying to flatten the curve? Well, I think Governor Cuomo has has really done a, a great job um, of trying to lead New York through this process. Um, he certainly made mistakes. I think the mayor De Blasio. Uh, was a little late to the party in in shutting things down, um, but I I think that you know frankly I don't know that there was a tremendous amount of success in flattening the curve, other than just isolating and yeah. just trying to keep people away from each other. Uh, that's really been the only uh, means that has has worked at all, um, and so that's that's the best that we can do right now without having a vaccine and without having testing. Thanks, Dan, for sharing uh, that experience with us. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Sidwell Friends. When did you come to Sidwell? How did you end up at the school? Well, I am a lifer. Um, I started at the very, very beginning, what is now pre-kindergarten, then it was kindergarten, um, because we had a, a, what kindergarten was, was transition at the time that I started, but I did, um, I was there from, from the, the get go, um, pre-kindergarten and went, went all the way through, uh, through high school. So I, I experienced the full gamut of Sidwell and <laughs> have, uh, incredibly fond memories and some incredibly close friends and, and close relationships with teachers. It's, uh, it was a, a seminal part of my life and still is today. Would you tell us uh, what some of those memories are? What is it that you've taken with you um, during your from your time at the school? Well, I, a, a, a number of different things that that always um, jump out to me. Uh, first of all, of course, it's it's the friendships um, that and the bonds that you build going spending so much time and going through the process. But the thing that really always uh, I think back to and I've looked for. Uh, similar qualities in in schools as as I've done this the school process for my children in New York, which is there's there's an incredible foundation of of friendship of camaraderie of um, equanimity you know that that the Quaker values I think underpinning education really bring to Sidwell. And, you know, I remember it's not just the, the meeting for worship, which is, is, has always been a, a strong memory for me um, that I 
you know, first loved when I was in lower school, then hated in middle school, then grew to really appreciate in in high school and upper school. Um, but it's also just the the basic values that the school carries and instills in the students that um, is very unique and is very hard to emulate and to find uh, elsewhere. And that I've I've always searched for it. Um, that that it's it's difficult to find but you know the 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 one memory i guess or the thing that always sticks out to me is um my my father died when i was in eighth grade and the way that the school but the teachers the parents the kids everyone the administration rallied around our family um, during, you know, in the, in the aftermath of that is something that I will never forget. Your mother is one of my favorite people. Um, I have to say that I've, I know I've told you that before, but she is an extraordinary <laughs> Me too. person. Yeah. 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 And, uh, has she, what influence has she had on you? Oh, my mother's had a, a tremendous influence on me just generally, particularly, um, you know, raising three children yeah. after my dad died by herself and instilling the values um, that I carry with me today, for better or worse. But uh, certainly education was a huge part of our family's life, um, but also uh, appreciating, you know, everything that every opportunity that we had and making sure that we took advantage of those opportunities and to give back in ways little and big um, has always been a, a huge part of the values that my mother has passed on and and I credit um, a lot of those values for you know my career path and my decision to um, try to to do public service uh, as a career in addition to you know what other charitable endeavors I may have and that was certainly something that um, was instilled in me from both my parents, but my mother is in particular. Yeah. And it's, it, this is a tough time to be a parent. It's a lot of yeah. anxiety, a lot of fear in the world. How are you responding to that? And what advice might you give to people about um, parenting in a time of uh, tremendous uncertainty? Well, I, I mean, just because you, I, I I have five kids certainly doesn't make me the expert on, on parenting. <laughs> it, it helps. <laughs> but, uh, You've got a lot of experience. <laughs> I, I, I do have I do have a lot of experience, and I think the thing that that we try to do more than anything is um, to alleviate the anxiety that kids feel, um, and certainly my my older kids feel a. Uh, a, a lot of anxiety and they felt anxiety when we came down with the coronavirus. And so we spent a fair amount of time talking it through, explaining how it works, et cetera. Um, but, you know, honestly, I don't know that there's a, a magic bullet. Uh, there's a lot of triage. There's a lot of just trying to get through the day, trying to keep them active and, and entertained and engaged in some fashion. But more than anything, it's, it's been, there's there's a silver lining in all of it, particularly for me, having spent the last year or so um, away, largely away from my family, which is getting a lot of family time. So that's been really nice. Yeah, I'm sure it's nice to recover that. You've been busy lately. A little bit. <laughs> and we will get to that. So um, you, you leave Sidwell Friends, you go to Yale, and then on to Stanford Law School. Any Any major moments in terms of uh, your career development uh, that that are that stand out to you there that you'd share with us today? Sure, I, I you know I really feel very lucky in terms of my educational path, not only um, through Sidwell and the values and the education that I got, and I felt like when I got to Yale, uh, it was really easy for me. Um, and in fact, I felt like in many respects Sidwell was more difficult uh, academically than than even Yale was when I, when I got there. Um, but again, it's, I, I felt lucky that there was an opportunity to go to a place, um, like Yale where the, the people are, uh, so, so smart, but had so many varied interests and, and were down to earth and many, mostly for the most part. Um, and I, the experience of, of being at a, a university like that 
where there's so many opportunities was, was incredibly valuable. And I pursued journalism. I did all sorts of different things and felt like, all right, I'm going to go and be a journalist. Um, and so after college, I went and I went to work for NBC Olympics um, and had a great job doing it as an Olympics researcher. I traveled the world, uh, going to all the various world championships of the Olympic sports to interview the athletes, the journalists, the coaches, and become the an expert on everything that uh, the Olympics was about. And ultimately, though, it was an amazing experience, but decided that um, I couldn't, t I could, uh, try to pursue something other than law, but I couldn't take the, uh, the law out of my, me having been instilled <laughs> from my, uh, my family of lawyers, uh, and, and decided to go back to law school. But I went, you know, I went back to law school, um, with a, with, with a pretty specific intent of getting into public interest law. And uh -huh. I think the one, the one big piece of advice I would give to anyone, and I, I pass this on to everybody, particularly who's considering law school, is do not just go to law school because it's a default. Do not just go yeah. because you, you can't figure out what you want to do after college, so I'm just going to go to law school. I think the people who become most unhappiest as lawyers are the ones who didn't make an affirmative decision that they wanted to go to law school for a particular reason. Now, it happened to be that I chose to go back and I wanted to do um, public interest and civil rights law, law work. I tried that and I, I didn't really like it, um, even though I thought that's what I would do. And I ended up after law school um, where I had some, some really interesting experiences. I was part of the very first Supreme Court litigation clinic at a law school. Stanford had the first one. Now it's it, there are a number of them around the country and they do great work. But that was a pretty unique opportunity to be a part of that. And I spent a good amount of my time in law school doing that. And then I went on to clerk for um, a judge on the district court, uh, Charles Breyer, who was the younger brother of the Justice Breyer. Uh -huh. And he was turned out to be a, a really important mentor of mine and was strongly advocating that I think about becoming a prosecutor, uh, which he had done before he went into private practice as a defense lawyer. He just thought that it was a really valuable experience. And it was something I hadn't really thought very much about. And I came back to New York and I did a clerkship um, on the appeals court and found myself really interested in the criminal um, cases a lot more than the civil cases and decided, all right, I'm going to see if I, I can become a prosecutor. So I, I did. Um, and I, I, we can talk about that a little bit more, but it was an interesting circuitous route to get there. I didn't go to law school thinking I would ever be a prosecutor. Yeah. And in fact, I applied to be a public defender after my first summer um, as an intern and didn't get that job. Um, but the, the decision to become a prosecutor and to become someone who was a little bit more progressive thinking as a prosecutor was a, a difficult one, but one ultimately where I felt like the discretion in the criminal justice system really lies with the prosecutors. And I would rather have the discretion than to be fighting those that did have the discretion. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And so uh, that's great advice for our, our students too, about not just getting, staying on the train and going to law school, if you're not really clear, but also uh, remaining open uh, to, to what you might learn about yourself and to be open to other opportunities along the way. Yeah, I think that's critical. I think that, um, and you know, you, you see it from a lot of people, particularly in college who, uh, are, are pre-med and they think they want to be doctors. And then ultimately, you know, that organic chemistry class kind of kicks them in the butt and they decide, <laughs> all right, well, maybe I'll try something else. Yeah. But the you weed know, out class. That's always exactly. the weed out class, organic. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's, I, I think that, you know, there, it's important to have a purpose, but it's also important not to be uh, singularly obsessed with one thing that you uh, are intent on doing because yeah. uh, everybody has different experiences and, and there's no way, you know, one of the great things about the American education system, which is different than the European education system is you don't have to decide what you want to do when you're 18. You can go to college and get exposure to all sorts of different things. And, 
So you end up in the Southern District of New York as a prosecutor. What are the highlights of that? I mean, I, we all know some of them, but what, what are the highlights for you uh, in your time in the Southern District? Well, it was a, an amazing experience. I had 10 years there. And, um, you know, the, the highlights for me were um, certainly a, a few cases that, that I did. Um, one that jumps out is, is, an, is a case that I did with another Sidwell alum, Mark Lanfer who was uh, mm -hmm. two years behind me at Sidwell and also went to college with. And then we uh, found ourselves at the U.S. Attorney's Office together. And Mark had an investigation that uh, I was following. We were in the same unit. I was not on the case at the time. But I remember when Mark had a, a charged a case and one of uh, it was a, a uh, mob case, a Genovese crime family case, and he charged a a person up in Massachusetts with murder for murdering the captain of the Springfield, Massachusetts branch of the Genovese uh, crime family. And this guy decided to cooperate, which was very unusual for the mafia generally, and particularly the Genovese crime family. Very, very few of them have ever cooperated with the government. And so Mark is, is busy, um, debriefing this witness and this defendant. And he says, you know, there's, he admits, tells Mark, there was another murder that we did. And Mark continues to ask him, you know, obviously follows up the questions. He said, yeah, you know, we murdered this guy. We buried him in the backyard of a house just outside of Springfield. So the FBI uh, gets their, their team together to go to this backyard and they take three days to dig up the backyard and they found the bones of the body of the person who the witness had admitted to killing. Um, and it was kind of a crazy scenario. Then Mark um, brought charges against a number of other people. And as the case was getting ready to go to trial, I joined it. And so Mark and I tried and one of the people that, that Mark originally had charged was the boss of the Genovese crime family who had ordered the murder. And then there were two other guys who were from Springfield who he charged. And um, a couple other people uh, they ch he charged who had cooperated as well. So as the case went to trial, I, I joined Mark on the trial team and, and we, we tried the case and ended up convicting uh, the three people who went to trial of, of all of the charges, including uh, both mm -hmm. murders. And they went to jail for life. The, the sort of uh, the postscript to the story is that one of the two uh, people from Springfield, Massachusetts, who we convicted, not the boss of the Genovese family in New York, but the Massachusetts guys, uh, one of them ended up killing Whitey Bulger while in jail mm. uh that happened uh, i think a year or two ago and uh the sort of odd postscript to the story is that one of our defendants was the one who actually murdered whitey bulger in in jail mm. um so that was that that was probably this the the most sensational case that i had uh and i was lucky enough to do it with mark who's a fabulous lawyer um but then i after after I did that case, I became a supervisor of, of the organized crime unit and oversaw a bunch of different cases, including um, a lot of Russian cases, a lot of obviously Italian mafia cases. Um, and there was a, a big uh, Russian money laundering case that our office brought uh, against some of the real Russian organized crime folks um, that, that was, got a, a fair amount of attention. And then after that, I wanted to go back and, and do some cases. Um, and so I went to the securities unit to do some white collar work mm -hmm. and ended up um, doing a, a, a fun and kind of wild insider trading trial against uh, the best sports gambler in the country, this guy, Billy Walters. Um, and that case gained some notoriety because Billy Walters had appeared to have given the inside information about a particular stock to Phil Mickelson, 
who mm-hmm. bought, bought right. the stock and uh, turned out for 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 a variety of, of very technical legal reasons, we could not charge Mickelson because of the way that the insider trading law was at the time. But we did charge Billy Walters, and I went to trial. We went to trial and ended up convicting him, and that was a that was a fun trial. The uh, the the sort of odd uh, little inside uh, baseball story about that trial is that Billy Walters' defense lawyer was Barry Burke, who I then worked very closely with on the impeachment stuff. When both of us, uh, after the fact, when both of us were went down to D.C. to work for Congress. Oh. Interesting. So you've seen uh, people involved in some pretty serious ethical breaches along a wide range of issues, insider trading uh, to murder. What happens? How, how, how do these people get there? What is it that leads them to uh, snap in this way based on your experience? There are sort of two categories of broadly, two categories of criminals that I came across. One is the professional criminals, the mafia, the people who have made a decision that their career path is going to be crime. Um, and that's that's a very different animal um, that you, you see that with gangs, you see that with mafia, you see that with a lot of, of drug dealers. There's no question that what they're doing is a crime. Everybody knows it's a crime. And for a variety of of potential reasons, they make the decision that they are going to just engage in that crime. There's no question, you know, uh, as to whether or not drug dealing or murder or extortion or, um, you know, any, any of the traditional mafia crimes are crimes. They, they are. And there people, but you can see that in terms of the Italian mafia, you see it in gangs, but you see it in, you know, in, in Russian organized crime that I dealt with a lot where it was more fraud based. It was trying to find the, the next scam, the next scheme that's uh, based on fraud, not on violence. So that's sort of the one category of people who make a decision and there's all sorts of different reasons, whether it's desperation, whether it's addiction, whether it's just this is the life that they were bred into, whether it's lack of education, lack of opportunity. There are all sorts of different reasons why people decide to to do that. Um, but then there's another category of people who I think it's a who engage in crimes of opportunity. And they did not set out to become criminals and they don't look at themselves in the mirror and think I am a criminal, but the opportunity to engage in a scam or a crime presents itself and they take it for a variety of reasons. A a lot of times what I found to have happened is that people push the envelope and they, but they, they think they're pushing it right up into the line. And then for some reason they go over the line and nothing really changes for them. They were going right up into the line and then all of a sudden they go over the line, but it's all the same, except that they are able to uh, benefit from going over the line probably more than they benefited from staying within the line. But then once they do that, they realize, okay, that wasn't that hard. And you know they'll rationalize it these are primarily fraud defendants and they'll rationalize it and they'll think to themselves, okay, you know, well, uh, all sorts of different reasons. It's not really that bad. It's not that much different than what I did before. Just where is the line, you know, all these different things. And then they start to do it again and again and again. Um, And ordinarily I, you know, it's sort of a, an old cliche, but nobody gets caught committing their first crime. Um, very rarely do people get caught committing their first crime. And so, you know, with the Billy Walters case as an example, this was someone who was a, a very um, prolific stock trader. He had been engaged in trading and he, he knew a lot about it. He had a lot of, uh, he gained a lot of expertise. He discussed stocks with a lot of different experts and people with knowledge and had uh, been pretty successful and was sort of presented with this opportunity 
because he was friendly with the chair of the board of a Fortune 500 company. And all of a sudden, the information that he started getting from this this board chair became less generalized and much more specific and very non-public information. And I don't think that Billy Walters, you know, set out to commit insider trading when he started trading stocks. He was just presented with the opportunity because of his relationship with someone who had material non-public information. And he just jumped at that opportunity. But the result is he committed a crime and he spent spending five years in jail as a result of it, mm. of taking advantage of the crime of opportunity. Mm. So after your time at the Southern District, it seems like the journalism bug hits you again. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's how I would describe it. I, well, tell I, how, how would you describe it, right? Because you, right? You, maybe you do. You end up actually. You end up being a legal analyst at a very interesting moment. And it it was fortuitous in a lot of respects yeah. that um, what the the Robert Mueller investigation, the special counsel's office, had kind of taken over the news. Right. media story. Right. And I remember the, I was supposed to meet with you in New York one one time and, and um, we couldn't meet because you were kind of on ice in case you had to speak about the Mueller case. <laughs> yes, it became far more consuming than the, the few minutes a day that I was on television. But um, yeah, it was really a just I, I had left the U.S. attorney's office and didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had an opportunity to appear on a, a local TV uh, station to talk about um, some of the criminal justice stuff. I don't even think it was the Mueller investigation initially, but then it became this huge wave of um, of Robert Mueller twenty four seven on cable news media and, and otherwise, and and it was an It was a unique time where my particular expertise was very valuable. Because people didn't, most of the public doesn't, don't understand, or, nor would they have any reason to understand how criminal prosecutions work. And so it was sort of an interesting point in time where that expertise and that knowledge was really desired by the public and by the, the news uh, media. And so I started doing more television appearances to analyze what the latest information was that the journalists were finding out about Mueller. So that's why I wouldn't necessarily characterize myself as a journalist, because I was not finding the information. I was not sure. reporting on the information. I was really just analyzing whatever information was presented. But it felt like it was a, an opportunity to continue to do some public service because the uh -huh. public was clamoring for this information. Yeah. And I happened to have 10 years of experience doing it. So I was able to um, to do the analysis and to try to break it all down for for the public in a way that made some sense. And, and so yeah. that's how my my brief TV uh, career <laughs> started. Well, it was very helpful. And and it, part of what I found interesting about it, in addition to the legal analysis, was the, the strategic analysis in terms of how uh, the attorneys might be uh, shaping uh, their investigation and, and perhaps their arguments later. That was a, that's a huge part of it. And we were all reading tea leaves and we get little bits and pieces of information and you're trying to put it all together. And I think that the experience of doing an investigation like that um, and having 10 years of a, of a variety of different investigations was was very helpful for me to be able to kind of uh, distill what all these little tidbits and facts meant and how it might be used as part of a, of a larger investigation. Um, but of course, you know, I always recognized as I as I did when I was on the other side that the public knows so little about what the uh, actual information is, because even though you might get some leaks and you might get some information, it's not the full story. So it was a little tricky because you didn't I didn't yeah. want to go too far overboard to, to make you know, strong, conclusory assertions about what was going on, because I knew that we had no idea really what was going on. 
but you could imagine, and that was helpful. It made uh, both for good analysis and good drama. So, um, you know, I think that, uh, <laughs> that you did a great job in that role. And then Adam Schiff calls you. Yep. And how, yep, tell us I, about that conversation. Well, the, the, the sort of uh, the interesting part of the path that I've had is um, and I, I talk to I try to talk to people, particularly from the Southern District or from other U.S. attorney's offices, because it's very unconventional to leave without having a job. And I left without having a job. I ended up getting into this TV thing. And then one day in June of 2018, I run into Adam Schiff in the green room at 30 Rockefeller Center in New York because we both were on the Brian Williams 11th hour show that night. And I start chatting with him and, and he's a former prosecutor as well. And we're, we're just talking about the Mueller investigation and, and the stuff that we've also been, he, he and I both were talking about on television and I said to him at the end, I said, hey, look, if there's ever an opportunity where you need some help, please let me know. And he said, well, there's no there's no opportunity right now. But if uh, the Democrats take over the House in November, there very well may be. And I said, well, great. Keep me in mind. So the Democrats do take over the House in November. And a couple of weeks later, uh, I get a call from the Intelligence Committee's general counsel to see if I'm still interested and potentially joining the committee and and working for adam schiff and i said i definitely am so uh you know went down there met with the met with uh, adam and and the team and ultimately joined the committee as the uh, senior advisor and director of investigations because um, adam wanted to beef up the investigations that the committee was doing at the time there was obviously the Mueller investigation, which that committee had also investigated the same Russian interference in the election uh, before the Republicans abruptly ended the investigation in March of 2018 when they were in control. But Chairman Schiff wanted to restart that or at least be prepared for anything that flowed from the Mueller investigation. And he also wanted to do a robust financial investigation to see if there are any conflicts of interest uh, with the president's um, finances as it relates to Russia or any other foreign countries. And he was quite public about that. And that was very clear that that was going to be a focus. Um, but I, so I, I ended up going down there without any in, uh, knowledge or intent of doing impeachment. The Intelligence Committee, which Adam Schiff chaired, is generally speaking not the impeachment committee, that's the Judiciary Committee. So. That was not what I, I had intended to go down there, but as I'm sure we'll get to, events intervened. <laughs> they did. And so then you find yourself uh, being the, the chief counsel um, for uh, the Democrats in the, in the um, impeachment process. How do you yes. how do you make sense of that? And, and what are the learnings there? What is it? What do you discover? in that process? I mean, it must have been a remarkably eye-opening procedure that you were in. It was. It was. I, I, to be quite honest, as I, as I now can decompress uh, over the last few weeks, it, uh, able to kind of look back and think about things in a different way. But at the time, you know, it, Congress is a very different animal than the Department of Justice. But there were some of the same big muscles that I was using. Um, and sort of that I had developed over my 10 years as a prosecutor. And when the Ukraine story hit um, or the Ukraine investigation began, it was uh, I really did instinctively kind of fall back on that muscle memory that I had developed and taken some of those the lessons that uh, I learned, particularly in the Southern District of New York, which is known to be a very aggressive U.S. attorney's office. And that's what I grew up with, and that's what I learned, and that's what I tried to bring to Congress when we got word of the whistleblower complaint, and it was just push, push, push. Um, and everything happened very quickly, uh, but that was somewhat intentional. You know, I, I had found that uh, the faster you move as part of an investigation, the, the better off you are in getting to the truth. The witnesses have less time to react, to coordinate if they're going to do that. The subjects of the investigation 
uh, have less time and ability to inter interfere, you know, and, and when you're dealing with mafia investigations, you're always conscious of the, the mob trying to interfere in the investigation. They have lots mm -hmm. of different ways of doing that, mm -hmm. some worse than others, but it was, you know, I, I really did rely on the experience that I had as a prosecutor. Uh, and so did Chairman Schiff, as he was a prosecutor too. And so we, we really did um, want to push as fast as we could to move the investigation forward. The result was kind of a frenetic, crazy uh, pace that, um, you know, led to multiple depositions day after day after day, and then very quickly moved into, you know, a number of public hearings. And we really went from start to finish of our investigation uh, in three months. Now, part of that was because the president and the administration refused to provide any documents to us. Um, and so documents take a long time to review. So we didn't need that extra time to review right. any documents because we had none. Um, but it was, it, 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 I, I'm, I'm perhaps most proud of what we were able to uncover and prove even without documents. As right. a prosecutor, the case that we were investigating would have been a document-based case. The, the way I would have done this as a prosecutor is we would have gotten all the documents, all the emails, all the text messages, everything. We would have digested them, distilled them, and then we would have interviewed the witnesses and the documents would have been the roadmap and the witnesses would have primarily just been commenting and, and explaining the documents. We obviously didn't have that, the documents, other than a few. So it was kind of flipped on its head. But uh, the end result was that uh, I do think that we we were able to get the facts um, and we were able to identify what a pretty consistent narrative storyline was about the president's uh, shakedown, essentially, of Ukraine and who was involved. And at the end of the day, from early September to early December, when we produced our 300 page report, it was a pretty consistent story that we heard from these witnesses and that we were able to kind of uh, put together for for the rest of the Congress and for the American public. Is there a truth outside of partisanship? Is there citizenship outside of partisanship? Well, there is. Um, you're, you're right to ask the question. It's, it's a little disconcerting, um, but I, I think that You've, you really hit the, the nail on the problem here, which is if we are not acknowledging what actual facts and truth are, then we're not having an honest conversation and we can't get anywhere. Because the only way to have a proper policy or even political debate is to be discussing and debating the same set of facts. And one of the very frustrating things that I think we all felt, those of us involved in it, is that we didn't put words into any of these witnesses' mouths. We didn't create any of the facts. You know, this was, all these witnesses testified under oath. Um, you know, some of them, I think, were not fully truthful at the beginning and ultimately became a lot more truthful by the end. And, you know, Gordon Sondland comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was nothing that we could do as investigators that we could go back in time. We were not fact witnesses. We were not a part of whatever scheme was going on. We were just trying to we're just trying to figure out what's going on. But if you distort the facts or you spin them and you or you just refuse to acknowledge and deny the existence of facts or truth, then you can't have an actual honest and intellectual, uh, intellectually honest or otherwise honest debate about what to do and how to proceed and whether it's good or bad or whether it rises to the level of impeachment or not. And I think that that's the biggest danger that we have with this president is when you're, you're shooting the messenger of the media and claiming everything is fake just because it's 
contrary to your own personal interests, or you're undermining the institutions that our government is founded upon so that you can uh, continue with your very personal, uh, personalized uh, pursuits, then we really run into problems because we're not having the, the same debates that we've had for centuries. And that's the real risk that we run right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dan, your brother, Bill, was um, an accomplished historian, a professor at the University of San Francisco um, before he was tragically killed in that uh, airplane accident. I was very moved by the words that he wrote <clears throat> about the need for active citizenship at this moment. Was that on your mind at all as you were involved in the Im impeachment hearings? All the time, every day. Um, I, I had many conversations with my brother uh, before he passed away about uh, Trump and the, the, the risks that our country is, is facing if he, um, you know, with his, his uh, ascendancy to the president or at the, you know, and we talked all the time about this sort of thing. And what I found was, you know, my, my brother was sort of ahead of me in, in his political interests. I still was at the U.S. Attorney's Office and had, you know, very little interest in impeachment or, or politics or, or Congress at the time. I was a nonpartisan career prosecutor. But when I got the opportunity to go down there, I thought a lot about how my brother had written about and talked about the time is now for people to participate in our democracy, to become active citizens, to become actively involved in making sure that this great country that we have is continues to be based on the the foundations that our founders created and I, I certainly thought a lot about it my brother during the impeachment process and and wished very much that i could speak to him about it and and i know that uh he would have been quite proud of the work that that i did and that we did um because at the end of the day, that was as, as much of an active citizenship as, as one probably could imagine. Yeah. Or certainly that I could imagine. <clears throat> and you've certainly led a life of public service and active citizenship. What advice would you give to Sidwell Friends in terms of making sure that we teach our students to be active citizens and stewards of the world? You know, I, there, there are the obvious things, some of what I described about, you know, democratic values and making sure that, that we're always thinking about both the democratic values, but also participating in whatever way is possible, doing service, whether it's public service, community service or otherwise. But the one thing that I, I think gets a little bit lost um, on some campuses, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say Sidwell is one of them, but certainly college campuses, is that there, you, you need to have the opportunity to hear from both sides. And that's why I go back to the, fa the, the idea that facts matter, that truth matters. If you're dealing with the same set of facts, there are going to be opinions on both sides. And the way to sort of win the day is not to stifle contradictory or contrary opinions. It's to uh, beat them, so to speak. It's to out-reason them or out-argue them or out-analyze them or show that your view actually substantively wins. It doesn't win just because you stifle the, the opposing viewpoint. And that, that, that is the flip side, I think, of what you see President Trump doing, which is that if anyone asks a question that of him, any journalist asks a question of him that is potentially critical of him, then he attacks the journalist or he says it's fake news or what, whatever it is and uh, that, that, that he disagrees with. And that is really where we run the risk in our government, in our society 
of losing the forest or the trees. We must have robust debate and the best ideas shall win, not through stifling whatever the opposing viewpoint is. And so I would urge everyone at Sidwell and, and at campuses around the country to have the debate. As long as we are debating the same set of facts and as long as we recognize what the facts are and that there is a there is such a thing as a fact um, <laughs> that that the, the debate about the facts should be yeah. fostered. It should not be uh, stifled. You mentioned um, Ali, who's a good pal of yours and working with Mark Lanford, whose spouse, Anne, is actually a colleague of uh, Dan Entwistle's in the English department. Are there other folks um, and, and friendships that uh, you hold very close and dear from your time at Sidwell Friends? There absolutely are. I mean, I, I, I would they're they're close friends for sure. But I think the bond of uh, being a Sidwell alum is something that's very special and uh, whenever I come across other alums, uh, as I, as I have and was able to do more frequently when I was in DC, um, for the year, but it's, it's, it's really nice to have that bond and to know that we have that shared experience and those shared values. And so it's even more than the friends that I had and the classmates that I had. Um, but I just, you know, I got an email from a classmate of mine who I haven't spoken to in in 20 years, who's uh, thinking about doing a, a documentary and, and wants to talk to me about doing a part of it. And it's it's just as soon as I see a, a Sidwell classmate, there's a, a natural affinity and a natural draw. And I think that's that's really what makes the school uh, so special and the experience so special is you, those bonds are never broken. Dan Goldman, a member of the class of 1994 and a lifelong public servant. Dan, it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's been great.